Welcome to The Well Podcast. We pray that this message ministers to you and blesses you as you listen. don't like smelling other people's breath or whatever. Um, th- there is other opportunities. <laughs> Valerie's chuckling. She knows. She smelled somebody's breath this morning. Um, there's mints outside on the table. Just not, not going to point to anyone in particular, but, um, but I just want to say there's other opportunities there to, to be involved. Uh, obviously, nowadays, um, having a presence online is a big thing, um, and we've got some people that are working on that. Um, but that's always something that we can always do more. We can always expand more there. Uh, media, sound, all those things um, are just, <clears throat> I don't want to say necessary, but they're niceties, right? Um, to make the experience uh, for you so you're not sitting out there going, what did he say, right? That's why we have microphones and speakers and things like that. Um, and it, it just amplifies worship. It fills the room with sound, and, and I just can't help but think heaven is going to be like that. Heaven's not going to be a quiet, you know, someone over there with a harp in the corner, pluck, 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 pluck. You know, it's just not going to happen. Um, heaven's going to be a loud, um, tremendous atmosphere filled with all kinds of lights and colors and sounds that we can't even imagine. So take your imagination as far as it'll go and realize that it falls well short of what heaven's going to be like. All right, so I want to get into a, a little word this morning, um, and I'll ask if you will, if you'll stretch your hand this way and pray for me as I pray for you. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for your word. Father, for the life it brings, I thank you, Lord, that, that your word is a living word. It is ever revealing something new and fresh in our lives and in the scriptures and how they unfold in our lives. So, Father, this morning I ask that you would bless every heart. Father, that it would be soft this morning and tender to your word, that it might penetrate and find good soil, Father, that that seed can find uh, good soil, that it can be rooted and grown and be healthy and prosperous, Father, and bring forth a harvest in time. And Father, I ask that you touch every mind, Father, that it would be uh, ready to receive a new thought and a new word from heaven. So Lord, I ask that you would bless the atmosphere this morning and everyone that's here, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, it was, uh, was kind of interesting this morning, um, and I'm going to kind of save that to the end, but I, I, I knew this morning uh, with certainty uh, about 9.20 uh, that I was going to be able to share this word. And, and if you've been here the last couple weeks, um, and if you know anything about our culture here at the well, is if the Holy Spirit is moving, we're not going to, we're not going to block that. We're not so steadfast that, that we need to have a program and everything needs to be planned and we must stick to that plan. We're not going to do it. Um, if, if the Holy Spirit's moving, if, if people are in the altar and there's prayer going on, or if people are just lost in worship, we're going to stay in that river. We're going to stay in the river the Holy Spirit makes for us and that kind of thing. Um, because uh, I'm a firm believer that the Holy Spirit and God in heaven can do a greater work than I can. So, but I knew this morning about 9.20 a word was spoken and confirmed what I had been studying. Um, and the, the interesting thing about that is that, um, and I'll share that word with you later where, it, um, where it'll make more sense. But, but God tends to, uh, well, he knows I'm hard-headed. Anyone else hard-headed out there? All right, good. You're in good company then. Uh, for the rest of you, you're so lucky. You're so lucky um, because you don't have to, you know, go through things multiple times and and get hit over the head with the word multiple times for you to get it. Um, So count your blessings there. Um, So I want to talk this morning um, about, well, let me back up. Uh, Before I introduce that, I'll I'll just say the last few weeks we've talked a lot about Zion and ascending the mountain um, and, and, and drawing close to Zion. And in Zion, as you know, is where the temple was in Jerusalem. Um, I, I should say where the temple is in Jerusalem. Um, it's got to be put back together, but it's still there. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of words were released in the last week about ascending to Zion. Well, if you know anything about the the area there in Jerusalem, Zion is on a hill. It's on a mountain, 
And it's the same mountain they say that, that um, Abraham took Isaac up onto. And it was the same place that, that Abraham would go to, to experience God. And so, and so this, this mountain towers over the, the local area anyway, and, and it's the highest point, um, which reminds me quickly of the, of the scripture about um, lighting a candle and placing it under a basket. But no, you set it on a hill. And that's what Zion was, and that's what Zion was to the community, was, was the presence of God set on a hill. So as you came over the mountains or the plains and Jerusalem came into view, the one thing that you saw up on top of the mountain was the temple. And it invited everyone in it, and it was served notice to everyone that that is the place of God up on top of this hill. So, so I, I wanted to look at that a little bit more. And, and I'm not sure how I got there, but I got on to uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, and that's where most of the, the scripture I'm going to use today comes from. Um, but if you've spent any time in the Word, you know it's, it's, it's like a flower or like an onion. As soon as you look at, at one petal, you realize, oh, there's, there's more in here, right? Um, if you've ever peeled an onion, you'll peel off a layer just to find another layer. Um, and, it, and you can go over and over and over again. And that's the experience I had in this Word this week. Um, where I started in Nehemiah, and, and the very first thing it talks about is, is uh, Nehemiah is charged with rebuilding the walls of the city around the temple. And one of the first things it talks about is the sheep gate. And I thought that's where I was going to land, was just talk about the sheep gate. But then I, I started to read about that, and the next one, and the next one, it just unfolded and unfolded and unfolded. So, so anyway, so it... it uh, I'm going to do a, a 50,000-foot flyover of Nehemiah chapter 3, and I'll essentially go through the whole chapter. And it sounds like a lot of scriptures, so I'm not going to read it all. That's your homework, okay? Um, but um, I do want to get into this um, because it, it reveals something about the city of Jerusalem that we can use as a, a blueprint for our life. Now, if you've studied the word at all, you'll know that the Old Testament is, is Jesus concealed, is what they say. And so if you look at the Old Testament, a lot of things that you'll see in the Old Testament are uh, uh, rituals and traditions and practices that God did corporately with Israel that in the New Test Testament, God does with us personally. And so that's going to be a theme that runs throughout this Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, so I want to, to try to pull out some of that, that Old Testament wisdom that God put into the structure of the city. Yes, into the walls of the city. And the cool thing about it is you can still go there and you can probably see a lot of this still today. Um, but, but God literally wrote it in stone, if I can put it that way. And I think the word that, that we'll get into today will be revealing to you, and it'll, it'll reveal to you a little bit of that immutable, unchanging, everlasting character of God, that, that when he does something and he leaves his fingerprint behind, that you can see it and it is relevant forever. All right, so, um, so we're going to start in Jerusalem. So, so a little background on Jerusalem. Um, at the time of Christ... Jerusalem was already about 2,000 years old, so it is an old city. Um, and um, one of the things that, that, um, th that we need to think about when we think about Jerusalem and we think about these old cities, we think about them being very, like, dirt roads and very antiquated and people carrying buckets and pails of water and, and just very basic. But these were Roman cities at this point. And if you know anything about Rome, Rome was terrifically organized. They had markets, they had roads, they had systems of uh, communication between locations. I mean, it, it was not electronic, very analog, if I can use that term, but they had hot water, cold water, running water, and, and, and they had systems to get the sewer and stuff out of the city, to get fresh water into the city. It, it's, it's not this... Um, kind of biblical idea of that we think of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem might have been out in the country, and it may have been very much like we see in a lot of the little Christmas uh, decorations where it is very agricultural, 
Jerusalem was not that way. Jerusalem was a city. It was a metropolis. It was where people came, and it was modern by the, the um, uh, measures of that time. But even when Jesus was there, Jerusalem was about 2,000 years old. So 1,000 years prior to that, King David came to Jerusalem, and, um, and he ruled there. Solomon built the first temple in 950 B.C., so that was following the King David. The kingdom split between north and south. Uh, he had Judah in the south and Israel to the north. And then um, Israel's captured by the Assyrians. Jerusalem, or Judah, the tribe of Judah, hangs on a little while longer and is eventually captured by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And, uh, and if you remember the, the stories there, that's the, the three boys in the fiery furnace. And so the Israelites at that point are removed from Jerusalem and taken into bondage. And so now Jerusalem is largely under the care of the Babylonians who've conquered Jerusalem. So just kind of giving you a little history, a little setup here, because that'll be relevant as you get into the scriptures. And then the Babylonians were later captured by the Persians. Um, and the Persians, interestingly enough, as we pick up in Ezra chapter 1, um, release the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So let's, let's read the scriptures. This is Ezra 1, starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 5. It says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it through his kingdom. And this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are of his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild his temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of the God, the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord. So a couple things I want to pull out of the scriptures here. Um, one, there was this Jewish remnant that was in captivity in, um, in, under the Persians at this point. So in verse 4, it says, wherever they're found, let their neighbors contribute towards their expenses. And, and this is the same attitude and this is the same uh, stirring that God did as the Israelites came out of Egypt. And if you remember when they came out of Egypt, they left in a hurry, but they left prosperous. The Egyptians essentially were throwing everything they had at them and giving them the, the you know, left foot of fellowship or whatever and, and telling them that, that, that they may leave and please do so right away. And so we see the same provision here of a people that God's chosen people who are in bondage, who are, who are, are the servants in Persia, are now being gifted, are now being uh, elevated in society if they will return to God. And so they, they are given this provision and, and, and told to return to Jerusalem. And so what I want to point out here is, is that this is just like our lives, just like our lives. Because if we look at it, this parallels the, the Egyptians or, or the Israelites that are in Egypt that we can all look at and go, that's our life in bondage. That's our life in sin. That's our life when, when we don't really know God, when he's not a part of our life. And when God comes along and stirs us up and we decide that, that we're going to begin to walk towards him, we're going to begin to follow him, right? I've heard it said that no man pursues God who God hasn't pursued first. And that's a picture of what we're seeing here. God came into that situation and found those people, stirred the heart of the king and probably others around him to make a way for these Israelites who were, who were in bondage, this tribe of Judah that was in bondage, to be released, much like the Israelites did. And much like in your life and in my life, whether we recognize it or not, 
We're living in a, in a worldly culture. We're living away from God. And it's not until somehow through someone, either something we see, someone that speaks to us, a friend, a neighbor, whatever, but somebody is stirred that then comes into our life and says, hey, I know this guy. I think you should meet him. His name is Jesus. And so we see, we see the same picture here, again, of what God does corporately to this tribe of Judah, what he does in the, in the king and the people of Persia to stir them up to allow this to happen. And so in our lives, when we're living in bondage, when we're living in our own Egypt, if you will, someone often will come to us and say, hey, why don't, why don't you come with me? We've got this group that meets on Tuesday nights. Right? And they're going to play some music, and we're just going to pray. Just, just, it'll give you a chance to get away from the mess that you're going through. And it's somehow it's through those interactions, it's through those invitations, it's through that, that one-on-one talking that God is able to reach someone new. And so we're all supposed to be evangelists. We're all supposed to be out taking the opportunity to share the gospel. And here we see it. The king of Persia is the one God chooses to share the gospel to share the, the, the opportunity to, for the, the tribe of Judah to come and be reunited with their God in the temple. All right, so that's Ezra chapter 1. But something else that's interesting here is that the first thing they do, and, and this is through Ezra, and you're welcome to read it, but, but Ezra goes back in and he rebuilds the temple. And you know that struck me as odd because the city's in ruins. The walls are broke down. The gates are broke down. And this is, this is when it was the norm was to live in walled cities. But all of that is broken down. So what's the point of rebuilding a temple if you just leave it open for the bandits and the thieves and the oppressors to come against it? Does that seem odd to anybody? Is that just me? But I think much like them, why build a wall if you've got nothing to protect? Why draw close to God? Why, why would it be important to build up the walls and the fortifications to make the repairs in our own lives if we don't have a standard and we don't have a reason to do it? I mean, let's face it, a lot of us, <clears throat> when we're off on our own and in the world, we made a mess of our lives. And it's only, it's only since Jesus became real in our lives and that belief and that faith begins to grow that, that we ever turned away from that stuff. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, there's probably still stuff in our lives that we need to turn away from. So the first thing you've got to do in our own personal lives is have a reason to make those changes. Have a reason to make those repairs. And that's that initial seed of faith that's, that gets planted in our hearts. And we see the same thing here, is that until they had a temple, until they had God living in their presence, they didn't see the need and the urgency to rebuild the walls and put their life, if you will, back together. Okay? All right. I've got notes here. Don't know where I'm at. That's okay. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? So when we have that, that first ounce of faith that gets deposited in our life, when, when we allow ourselves to believe that, that Christ came to the earth, went to the cross for us, paid our sins, now has made a way to be redeemed into that right relationship with God. When that first gets deposited, now we can look at ourselves and go, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? Well, we have now covered Ezra chapter 1. We have now, what God did corporately in Ezra chapter 1 in that moment when we first believe is done in all of our lives. And now that temple of God begins to exist in, if you will, in the city of our lives. All right, so... Now I'm going to transition over to Nehemiah chapter 3, um, biblical history here. Put this in your side notes if you want. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. They split it into two, just random thing, come up in your Bible trivia night or whatever. 
All right, Nehemiah chapter 3. All right. So I said earlier, as we walk through the, the city of Jerusalem and you look at Nehemiah chapter 3, uh, Nehemiah, I think they said it was the, was the fourth one charged to go to Jerusalem, and his responsibility was to rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah um, was put in charge of organizing the effort, and, and these are essentially, um, we can look at here, the, the notes, if you will. And so if you look at Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it starts with the sheep gate. And it says, then Eliashib, the high priest and the other priests, started to rebuild the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set, it, set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated in the Tower of Hananel. People from the town of Jericho worked with him, and beyond them was Zakur, son of Imri. I don't know who all these people are, but I do know who a few of them are, and that'll become important later. They're... Again, 50,000-foot level, can't get into all the details because there's so much here. There's so much here. All right, sheep gate. What was the sheep gate? This is where the sheep are brought into the temple. This, this was where the shepherds who, who had the sheep out in the field where they would graze when, when the time of, um, um, I'm blanking on the name, uh, that's the one. That's one of them. Yes, not the one I was thinking, but a good one. Um, but when they would do the sacrifice and they brought the sheep in, this is the gate that they would bring the sheep in. The interesting thing about the sheep gate, and it becomes more obvious later, is that there's no bolts and no bars on the sheep gate. If we look down at, at verse 3, it says the fish gate. This is the next one. They laid its beams, set up its doors, and installed the bolts and bars. But there's no bolts and bars on the sheep gate. See, the sheep, the sacrifice is free to go. And as Christ being our sacrifice, the once and forever sacrifice, he's free. You can't close him out. You can't keep him out. He's there. And it's, he can freely come and go. And it's said that, that Jesus, in his day when he entered Jerusalem, with one exception, always entered through the sheep gate. That's, that's 40,000 foot level there. And so they built the sheep gate. And look at who built the sheep gate. It's the high priest. It's the high priest. The sheep gate was an important gate. It was, it was dedicated. It, it was something that they knew was, was important for the temple. It, it was not, not important just for the stone builders and the masons and the carpenters, but the priests were there building the gate. The priests were the ones that were laying the stones and making the way for the sacrifice to the temple. And as Jesus is our high priest, and he stands at that gate that has no doors and no bars and no locks, and he freely welcomes us in. There's something, something special about that. And there's something special about the tower that's next to it. It's called the Tower of the Hundred. And you can't help but think about the hundred and you go, where else have I heard 100 before? Well, the word says he will leave the 99 to search for the 1. And if you're not a math person, let me help you out. 99 plus 1 is 100. And so there's something about this tower and about this number 100 and the scripture that, that says he leaves the 99 for the 1 that says we're not complete until that 1 comes in. So that's the sheep gate. The next one is the fish gate. And again, they set up the beams, set up its doors, and installed the bolts and bars. Now, now fish at that time was, was one of their things that they ate. It was a food. It was something they would, would go with nets and harvest. And, and that's what the people ate on a day-to-day -day basis. Other things as well. They had grains and they had breads and Lots of fruits and, you know, lots of things agriculturally that I'm sure they, they grew. But fish was one of those, those meats that they could enjoy. And so this, this kind of reminds us, if, as we look at that, that, that's the sustenance, right? If we, if we look at this city of David and we, and we, we look at them rebuilding the walls, and, and, and again, it becomes more clear as you dig further into this, as they're living and, and eating these fish, we look at it and go, well, what, 
what is our sustenance? What, what should we be eating? And you can't help but, but think about, you know, the bread of life and eating the word and, and our sustenance there. But you also have to look at this and go, God asked us to be fishers of men. And so there's something interesting about coming in the sheep gate and, and recognizing our own salvation as we walk along the walls here to, to then look at the, the fish gate and go, there's a responsibility to go out and find others. There's a responsibility to be fishers of men. And then in verse 6, you get to the old gate. The old gate, Nate, I don't know if you want to throw that picture up there. Maybe it's been up there. I, I haven't been looking. Yeah, so um, so let's just pause for a minute here. And, and I know this is a lot of teaching, but, but it's so good, y'all. So the sheep gate is, is in the upper right-hand corner there. And the direction we're going to go is counterclockwise. Okay? And that, and that follows the scripture in Nehemiah 3. And so then you can see the next one over is the fish gate, basically like due north. And then the old gate here in the corner, and as you'll come down, there's the valley gate, the dung gate. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. The fountain gate, water gate, um, different than, than what happened in, in Washington. Um, and then you have the horse gate, east gate, and the muster gate or inspection gate. And then you get back around to the sheep gate again at the corner. Um, this will all become a little more important when we get to the valley gate and, and down through the bottom. Um, because the other, the other thing is that the way this is situated, um, and you can see the, the itty-bitty little square there is supposed to be the temple. I, I don't know. I don't think that's to scale at all. Um, but that's, that's the high point of the hill. And as you come this way, there's a valley that runs along the right, and there's another valley that runs along the left. And so the lowest point is down here at the Dung Gate. Okay? We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But the, the Old Gate... Um, I find it interesting that it's called the old gate because if it's an old gate, it's an old way. It's how people would have known how to get there for a long time. And as we look at that and we, we think about how that, that affects our life, what are some of those old ways in our life? And are they leading to the temple or are they leading away from the temple? And so it, it makes me question as I look at the old gate, what are those old things that we need to, to let go of? What are some of those old ways that, that, that are not leading us to where, where God would have us go, not leading us into his presence? But that's in, in verse 6 was the old gate. Now, in the next section, uh, in verses 7 and 8, um, there's just a couple things I wanted to point out here. And, and um, let me just read it. It says, next to them meaning the people that were at the old gate, were, I should have practiced these names first, Melatiah from Gibeon, Jaden from Moranath, people from Gibeon, the people of Mitzpah, the headquarters of the governor of the province west of the Euphrates River. Next was Uziel, son of Harhiah, maybe, a goldsmith by trade who also worked on the wall. Beyond him was Hananiah, a manufacturer of perfumes. And they left out a section of Jerusalem as they built the broad wall. So what, what I want to kind of pull out of the text here is, is that it, they weren't only building the gates, but they were building the wall. And, and I find it interesting here that you have a goldsmith that is laying stone. It's not his gift. It's not his skill. He seems out of place until you get to the next guy who made perfumes. And he seems more out of place than even the goldsmith does. At least the goldsmith works with his hands. And so I can't help but look at this and go, all people from all walks of life go through the process of building the wall. It wasn't just for the stonemasons. It wasn't just for the carpenters. It wasn't just for the people who had strong backs and big arms and, and were the lifters and doers of the time. But it, but it really did involve all people from all walks of life. And so, again, as you consider what God did corporately, now does personally, it leaves nobody out. Nobody is left out of this. This rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple, making a place for God in your life is for everyone. 
No one is excluded. Whatever your identity, whatever your job, whatever you connect to in your past doesn't exclude you from being a child of God and being a living temple of God today. And that there is room in the kingdom for your gifts and your talents. Whatever that may be. The Holy Spirit just gave me a few exceptions maybe. I don't know. We'll talk about that another time. All right, let's go down to, to verse 13 and 14. And this is the valley gate and the dung gate. Verse 13, it says, The valley gate was repaired by the people from Zenoa, led by Hanun. Um, I, I think somewhere um, inside the wall there must be a plaque uh, with all these people's names on it because they were really careful to identify the people in the groups that, that worked on all this. In verse 13, they set up its doors, installed its bolts and bars, and they repaired the 1,500 feet of wall to the dung gate. And the dung gate was repaired by Malkajah, the son of Rechab, the leader of Beth Hakarim of the Beth Hakarim district. He rebuilt it, set up his doors, and installed the bolts and bars. Now, the valley gate, as we look at it here, reminds us of the valleys in our own life. Um, and Nehemiah, in uh, I think it's chapter 8, um, as they're continuing to work on the city and rebuild it, actually takes a nighttime walk down through the valleys and things. But the, the valleys remind us of those low places. And, and it's interesting the way the temple is set up, that if you go south from the temple at all, you're going downhill. Um, and if you go outside the walls, you, you get into a valley. And at the bottom of the valley is a stream that, that runs through there. Um, now, the stream brought water into the local area. And that, that's part of the reasons, perhaps, that the, the city was founded there. But the valleys in our own lives tend to be those low places. And I, and I think something was said a couple weeks ago, but, but mountaintops are great but nothing grows on the mountaintops. If you look at, look at a mountain, something above about 10,000 feet, nothing grows up there. there. There's not enough air and oxygen to sustain life, and so the vegetation doesn't grow. The animals don't go up there. There's very little that goes up on top of a mountain. It's a great place to be because you're not having to trudge through a valley. You're not having to struggle to make progress in those low and murky areas. And so the valley gate here reminds us that, that in our lives, whether we're walking inside in the presence of God or whether we're walking outside, that the valley is always there. And the valley is, can be a place of growth. And it is through that growth that we discover that there's things that we can let go of. And that brings us to the dung gate. The dung gate, as you can imagine, uh, was the place where they took the garbage out. It's the place where the sewers empty. It was a place where all the things that didn't need to be inside the city were removed and dumped. And so again, as we look at our own lives and we look at and consider what's in our own lives, those things that can be removed, that should be removed, the sewer in our own lives, if you want to think about it that way, that goes out the dung gate. And I'll also point out that the dung gate was at the lowest point in the city. And so there's something interesting about being at a low point, and especially considering the city and the way it's laid out. And again, I think it's some of the beauty and the fingerprint of God here, is that if you go to the dung gate to get rid of something, when you turn around, who are you facing? And so the dung gate, to me, is a picture of repentance. Because in order to get to the dung gate, you've got to walk away from the presence of God. You've got to walk downhill away from the presence and you can continue out that gate, and you can go into the valleys below. But at any point along that journey, you decide to turn around. And the definition of repentance is simply a turning. The way the city's laid out and how it narrows down there leaves you viewing one thing at the top of the hill. And that is the temple where the presence of God is. And so there's a beautiful picture in, in how the city was constructed. This is constructed in stone. You can go visit it. It's still there, much of it. And you, you literally can walk through some of these places. 
and that the temple is gone, and, but, you know, you can imagine what it would have been, and I'm sure there's artist renditions. But when you go to this Dungate, when you decide that I'm done with whatever this nonsense is in my life, and you decide that you're going to get rid of it, that act of getting rid of it and turning to God is exactly what they would have physically gone through at the Dungate. And it is a picture of repentance in our lives. It's a picture of that turning away from those things that would soil our lives and turning to God. Isn't that so cool? Am I the only one that's jazzed about this? That's the, that's the teacher in me. I love to see these things. I love to see God's fingerprints on things. I just love it. I love it. I, was, I met Saturday with some other pastors, and, um, and we got to talking, and one of the things that, that one of the pastors said was, if you're a Christian, there's no such thing as coincidence. And I thought about that, and I'm like, well, is that really true? Because it, it just struck me. It's one of those things where you go, huh, you know, and you just think about it a minute. But, but if God, if you believe the scriptures are correct, and you believe God thinks good thoughts towards you, and they outnumber the, the grains of sand, if you believe he's numbered the hairs on your head, then certainly, certainly there's no coincidence. Now, whether you're picking up a lottery ticket or whether you just happen to miss an accident or whatever it is, God's hand is there. He's, he's somehow managed to orchestrate the entire universe for you to have that moment. And that's how big he is. And, it, and it, honestly, it blows my mind because I, I try to wrap my head around that and, and I try to think about it and I try to understand God and I try to, to, to figure him out just to learn that he's bigger than what I thought I knew. And, and, and I describe it this way. You, you look at a skyscraper way off in the distance, and you can tell it's really large. But when you walk right up on it and you get like this, and you're like, I, I can no longer see the bounds of the skyscraper. I can't see the outline. I can't see the limits. And that's, that's the encounter I have with God. Every once in a while I step back and I go, oh, I see what he's doing and then something like this brings it face to face, and it's like, oh, it's way bigger than I gave him credit for. And he's way greater than I give him credit for. All right. Round in the corner now, stepping away from the dung gate. The fountain gate. This is in uh, uh, verse 15. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kal Hazeh. Oh, um, something. They rebuilt it, roofed it, that was interesting, set up its doors and installed its bolts and bars. Um, so the fountain, in this case, fed pools. And these pools were where one would bathe in order to become ritually clean. So, so it probably doesn't take a, uh, uh, a scholar here to figure out that this is a picture of baptisms. This is a picture of, of the cleansing that they would go through before they would approach the temple, before the, the rites and the ceremonies and things. And so this fountain gate here um, is one of these things that, that marks a cleansing. And it's interesting that it's situated next to the dung gate because sometimes we recognize we got some of that soil in our lives. How do we feel? Dirty. And so there's an interesting thing here that they put the fountain next to the Dungate so that, that you can wash that dirtiness off, that you can be cleansed by the washing of the water. And if you look at water in the Bible, it always signifies life. It always signifies the Holy Spirit and a washing here at the fountain gate. And then next is the water gate. The water gate is actually where they would get water for their daily life, for their living. That would sustain them and bring them life. Um, and the Watergate was, was purely functional for those means. But, again, there, there's a washing and a passing of that dirtiness that we leave behind at the Dungate. And then there's a, a washing and a cleansing we go through at the fountain. And then there's the day-to-day -day living where we need to return to that water and continue to feast on that living water that brings us life every day. All right. Getting towards the end here. Now we're moving up. Um, and we've got the horse gate, the eastern gate, and the inspection gate. And this is in uh, Nehemiah 28 through 32. And so horses, 
horses in that time were not agricultural animals. They were not recreational animals. Um, they were tools of warfare. And so the horse gate would signify that, that there is a, a need and a, um, a place for battle and preparing for battles. And so the horse gate would be the one where the horses would be brought in, they would be tended to, they would be prepared for battle, and uh, warfare was all but certain. Now, how many of y'all know that, that in our life as a Christian, we can be saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, and we still go through battles? We still get challenged, the tests and trials come. And so we see a picture of that here in that the, the horses, the instruments of, of warfare, have their own gate. And I'm going to skip over the eastern gate for just a minute, and I'm going to jump over to the, uh, the inspection gate, or I think on here it's called the muster gate. Um, um, and so, so Daryl probably knows, or any of you that were in the military, um, they, uh, and I don't know the term, but, but when they assemble together, that's called a muster or the command maybe is a must or something around that. So this is a term that, that is borrowed, a military term that's borrowed and put here. But in this gate or, or by this gate would be the place where the army would be inspected, where before the army goes out to battle, the king would come and he would inspect his army. He would look over the chariots. He would look over the horses. He would look over the men. He would look over their armor and their weapons. And he would look at them and decide whether they were ready for battle. And then once they went off into battle and returned, they would gather again here and the king would come out and he would survey the damage. And he would see how many men were left, how badly they were bruised and beat up. Because he wanted to respond and make sure that his army was, was healthy, they were equipped, they were ready for the battles that would come. And when they came back battered and bruised, he wanted to make sure that they were taken care of, that they would be healed and rested and ready for the next one. And so there's a picture here if you will, of, of preparing for battle in our own life. And we can't help but, but think about Ephesians 6 and the whole armor of God that we're supposed to put on. And we can't help but think that our, the king of kings comes to inspect us and how well we're wearing the armor that he has given to us, that full armor of God. And there's a picture there of how we should be approaching life and be on guard and that we should always have an eye for those things that would come against us and attack us and always make sure that, that we have the armor of God fashioned and fitted appropriately, that we know how to pull out our weapons of warfare and use them. And so there's a picture here of not only, uh, again, practically and corporately what the Israelites and the people of Judah would do in this time in the courtyards in front of the king that God doesn't do in our own lives, in our own hearts. And then I'll end with this one, the Eastern Gate. The Eastern Gate lies between the Horse Gate and the Inspection Gate. And the Eastern Gate, found in verse 29, is interesting. Let me read verse 29. It says, Then Zadok, the son of Imer, also rebuilt the wall across from his own house, and beyond him was Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the gatekeeper of the east gate. And so this is interesting in that, in that this is the only gate in the city that has a gatekeeper. And so the, the eastern gate is the one that's closest to the temple. In fact, it leads right into the heart of the temple and right into the heart of the city at the top of the hill. It's also the first gate opened every day. So as the, as the new day is breaking, as Shechaniah looks out over the horizon and the light's coming over the, the valley and the plains and the hills, and he can verify that there's no danger, he gives the command to open the gate. And so the beautiful thing about this is that the light shines in from the eastern gate directly onto the temple. So there's a beautiful picture here about how every day, how there is, there is hope and there is light 
And there is a renewing every day as fresh light pours into the temple here in Jerusalem. And likewise, in our own light, if we will wake up and open that eastern gate and allow the light from heaven to shine on our temple, on our lives, that there is hope and life and newness every day. And we can't help but think about Proverbs 4.23 that reads, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And so it's interesting that, that we are to guard our heart. And it's interesting that in the city of Jerusalem that there is a gatekeeper at the eastern gate. There's a gatekeeper that leads to the heart of the city, who guards that path to the heart of the city, to the temple of God. And it's the only gate that, that is mentioned here that's guarded. So the, the interesting thing, and I was going to end here, but now I've got one other thing I've got to share. But it's interesting that, that the gatekeeper, is, is we know his name. Shechaniah was his name. And I may be saying that wrong. Um, but Shechaniah is his name. And if you know anything about names, names often have meanings behind them. And so when I like to see the fingerprint of God, this one really, really touched me. But you see, Shechaniah's name means one intimate with God. So the one who is intimate to God, or intimate to God, with God, is the one that decides when to open the gate, when to let in light from the outside, when the day in Jerusalem can start. And so there's something telling me there that, that we should have a little bit of Shechaniah in our own lives. And y'all can go, if you go out to lunch or whatever, just, that's a word you can use. You can just tell the, the waitress they need a little more Shechaniah in their life. But I think there's a lesson there in that, in that guarding that gate, guarding that, guarding our hearts should be done with one who is intimate with God. And I was going to end there, but, um, but I, I think I mentioned when I started that I knew, I knew this word was going to come out today. You know, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we hadn't got to it. And, and again, we're not going to interrupt the Holy Spirit to, to share a word that um, might be out of order. We're going to let him do what he wants to do. But, um, and I should also say that, that as, as Becky and I prepare our messages, um, we, we generally give each other space and, and don't talk about the message, right? Um, because I don't, I don't know about her, but I still get like butterflies and nerves to come up here and try to share this. Um, because I have this little voice that likes to pop up in my head and, and put doubt in my thinking. Um, and, and so I have to fight that. But this morning I knew that this was going to take place because Becky shared something in our meeting this morning. And, uh, and if you don't know, if you're working here on a Sunday, we generally meet at 915, go over who's doing what, make sure we got everything covered, and we just make sure that, that for anyone coming in the door, that we're organized, we're set, we're ready to greet them and love them as they come in. But this morning, she shared a, a passage out of Psalms 46. And, uh, and it's one of those hard-headed moments where God just had to confirm the word that he gave me. Psalms 46, verses 4 through 7 in the Passion Translation reads this. God has a constantly flowing river whose sparkling streams bring joy and delight to his people. His rivers flow right through the city of God Most High into his holy dwelling places. God is in the midst of his city, secure and never shaken. At daybreak... At daybreak, his help will be seen with the appearing of the dawn. When the nations are in uproar and their tottering kingdoms, God simply raises his voice and the earth begins to disintegrate before him. Here he comes. The commander, the mighty Lord of angel armies is on our side. 
the God of Jacob fights for us. And so she said that this morning, and of course I've been studying the city and the, and the dwelling place of God and how the daybreak brings forth that life into the city and how he's the commander coming to inspect his armies. And I'm sorry, y'all, it's just not coincidence. God is just that good. He's just that good. And we don't give him credit in our lives. We tend to pass things off, but he is that good. So I don't know where you're at in your journey around the city. Whether you've just come in the sheep gate, you're standing at the old gate, trying to figure out whether your old ways need to pass away, whether you need to turn back into the city, or whether you're going to take a trip outside down in the valley. Whether you've made a trip to the dung gate and turned around, or maybe you think you should. But let me just share with you this morning that God knows what he's doing. From a 4,000, 6,000-year-old city, whatever it is nowadays, his fingerprint's right there. His fingerprint's right there. So I just want to open up the altars this morning. If you're dealing with one of those gates, if you're dealing with the time in the valley and you need someone just to come alongside and pray with you, just to agree that God is going to show you how to, how to turn, how to come out of that valley, how to leave your stuff behind, whether that's your closing and locking the door to the old gate in the old ways, or whether you're dropping off a little deposit there at the dung gate, whether you, you feel like you need to, to, to bathe and be washed fresh and anew in the water that flows from an everlasting fountain, or whether you just need a little more life, a little more water, a little more living water to sustain you. I just want to give you an opportunity that someone will come and agree with you in prayer. So if you'll come, there's no judgment, there's no criticism. Everyone is on that journey somewhere. And even if you're at the temple, seated at his feet, gazing into his presence, if you'll pray for any who might come, any who might be dealing with those, those decisions in their life. Because at some point, you will make a trip by the valley. At some point, the battle will come. We want to thank you for listening in today. At The Well, we believe in cultivating a culture for more of God. Wherever you are in your relationship and walk with God, we believe that there is always more for those who diligently seek after Him. If you would like to find out more, please check out our website at thewellmichigan.com and connect with us on social media.